So I grew up in the urban areas of Lesotho. What was um, quite interesting that I think shaped my being as a journalist quite early in my life is the fact that um, at my village we had issues with access to water. So we'd take turns with my siblings to collect uh, water. So when it was your turn or my turn, I would have to wake up as early as 3 a.m. to go to the well, unprotected well, and um, queue there and collect water for, for the entire family. I didn't really like that. Um, I think it was pain in the ass. I, I hated it with all my being because my sleep would be disturbed. Uh, in the class during the day, I would also be sleepy and that was uh, a menace to, to my well-being. You're listening to Exposing the Invisible. Interviews with investigators about their methods, their communities, and what motivates them to keep going. My name is Pascalina Gavi. Um, I'm 40 years old and I'm the mother of um, one child. So this is me, a journalist. Um, so I've grown from, from where I started as a, as a junior to now um, an experienced uh, investigative journalist and also the first female Lesotho journalist to publish an investigative book. Um, so the book is called Pollution, Prophets and the People, which was published in, in 2022 as part of my Betha Fellowship. Um, basically, my project with, with um, the fellowship was to investigate um, the impacts of mining operations on the water courses in Lesotho, as well as to investigate um, the imbalance between protecting water sources in Lesotho and um, maximizing profits out of the environment in, in the country. So basically, that's, that's me. In 2007, I got um, a sponsorship from the World Council of Churches to go and pursue a diploma in journalism, media and communication in Zambia. Prior to that scholarship, after I failed my diploma in marketing, I stayed home for a year. So it was during that year that um, at church services, at youth gatherings, uh, I would start sharing current affairs, like I would uh, listen to the radio um, and then during the gatherings I would tell them, um, do you know that this is what is happening locally, nationally and even globally? Um, so one of the leaders spotted my interest. I think I didn't even realize that I was, I was passionate about journalism until he said, I think you would make a good journalist. Um, so that's when I, I woke up and I said, well, I've been doing this quite a lot now for the whole year, educating uh, my community at a church uh, level. That's when I realized that um, not only had I started with um, educating or sharing the current affairs with my communities, but it was my passion.
I started as an entertainment and sports reporter. So my journey was quite interesting because I left the, the weekly that I used to work for, Lesotho Times, and joined another weekly, which is Public Eye. And while I was at Public Eye, one of the senior reporters left, like resigned with immediate effect. Um, so the editor at that time called me in his office and said, you are, not, you are no longer a sports reporter. I'm promoting you to a features writer. So this is how I got into investigative journalism. I worked really hard. I started cultivating sources and I started breaking stories that um, many reporters in my country wouldn't have. The manner in which I love carrying out my investigation or writing my investigative pieces is that I always want to demonstrate how this particular issue that I'm investigating is impacting um, an ordinary person on the ground. Because I think um, the minute we miss that point of what is the impact of the story that I'm doing or the wrongdoing that I'm trying to expose on an ordinary person on the streets, on an ordinary person at um, the rural community, I think that's when people lose interest in our investigative journalism. Every time when I, I am back on an investigative piece, I ask myself, if I was a person on the, on the streets, if I was my grandmother, if I was my mother, if I was a sister or a girl in the rural or had to reach a places, how would this affect me? And then I try to talk to the people and ask the people now on the ground, how is this affecting you? Sometimes it's not even asking, how is this affecting you? It's just asking, what is the problem with water in your community? And then the more you discuss with them, the more you realize that this issue is basically connecting with what people are experiencing on the ground. So the investigation that is very close, closest to my heart, is the one that I did on the impact of mining operations um, on the water courses in Lesotho. Um, first, um, because I got to meet um, great, strong women in the in the grassroots of of Lesotho who are at the forefront of fighting for access to clean water for their communities. Um, look, it's not every day that you find women at the forefront fighting for access to clean water. So when you meet those women who are risking it all for their community, that made me proud and it made me realize that I'm onto something here and that um, there is a lot of, uh, as women, we need to come together uh, because together we, we make a, a very strong case. So that, that for me, um, it, was, it was an emotional experience to, to watch. I'm also proud about this investigation because for the longest time, the people of Lesotho in the highlands were complaining and telling us of stories of blue uh, toxic water in their rivers, in their streams. And the mines were uh, brushing them off as lies so when I got the confidential reports 
that corroborated what these people were saying. That made me proud that I have given these people the evidence, the much needed evidence to make their case strong. I look at the book and I am proud that I've been able to um, step by step work with my readers in that book to tell stories of water pollution, to tell stories of lack of access to clean water in my country, to share my own personal story of access to clean water. And one of the things that also makes me very proud about this um, work is the fact that I didn't just uh, go and talk to the communities. So I wasn't um, engaging in this um, extractive type of journalism where we go take and come back. So what I did is I went, I spent a lot of time staying in the rural uh, communities, learning how uh, they carry out with their day-to-day -day job. And after I had done uh, the investigations, I went back and, and said, this is the stories that you shared with me. Are these your stories? Did we misquote you? So it was quite emotional seeing people that I regard as my elders. Some are old enough to be my parents, some even my grandparents. But they trusted me with their voices. They trusted me with their stories. And they were happy that I had told their stories as, as they are. And that, that brought a smile on my face. I personally, I would like to be remembered as a champion of a social justice journalism in my country. Um, so when I, I look at the impact um, that we have had so far because of this uh, investigation that I did, um, it solidifies my, um, my wanting to be remembered as a champion of social um, justice journalism. So the challenges that um, I experience as an investigative journalist is that, first of all, access to information in Lesotho and I think in many parts of the world um, is a serious issue for investigative journalists, particularly when you are operating in a country like Lesotho where, in most cases, um, civil servants will flatly refuse to give or to give an investigative journalist that report without any any reason the other issue is that um, in Lesotho right now and other uh, countries in the region um, are introducing the cyber security law which um, if the bill is passed as is in its original form um, it, it it threatens um, the investigative journalism and it carries very hefty hefty uh, fines that we cannot um, afford as, as journalists in the country. So the other issue that I think it's, it's quite challenging is that as a woman, the way we are perceived, we are perceived as though we're supposed to be uh, under, undertaking soft um, 
news stories, not investigative. Um, and because many sources and many uh, officials, government or private sectors are main, sometimes it's difficult to, for them to see you as, as a valid person, as, as a competent person to do their stories. So it takes, um, it, it does the job to even be more double difficult by virtue of, of one being a woman. What really gets to me is the fact that my colleagues in the media and other people who've gotten to know me, they refer to my being brave as you are a man, you are not a woman. And that um, is quite, uh, for lack of a better word, insulting. Oh, the other biggest challenge is that from around 2010 uh, to now, there's been a polarization of media in, in my country um, where uh, journalists now um, work with politicians um, to push a certain propaganda and all that. So that polarization has eroded trust of um, our audience to, or to the media it, it, it means that we must do um, a lot of digging, unnecessary digging, to try and convince the people that this is the truth. Um, so in the face of disinformation and misinformation, investigative journalism um, is, is much needed, but at the same time is being questioned. The credibility of stories that we, we produce are constantly being questioned because of the disinformation and misinformation that are being propelled by some reporters who have now gone, uh, who are in bed with uh, politicians and, and other individuals who are politically exposed. Um, so investigative journalism is, is a very unsafe space. Um, where um, most of the time one is forced to look over their shoulders. As a journalist, you try to attend courses on safety. You try to um, have sources that are more experienced in terms of security so that they may uh, assist in terms of um, giving tips on how to go about um, certain issues. So in 2018, um, at the beginning of my investigative journalism, um, I got a confidential report and wrote um, two stories on the Lesotho Defense Force, on on how the soldiers were accusing the Lesotho Defense Force of mistreating them, of dishonoring the promises that were made. Um, I gave the army the opportunity to respond um, to the allegations. Two days after I published the last story, I received a call from the then army spokesperson telling me that we are particularly uh, not happy with the way you have published um, the stories and we are writing you a letter. So the letter was written to me in my personal capacity and I was called a spy. So being called a spy by the army is quite threatening. Uh, but before I received the letter, I remember very well that um, 
I could pick that I was being followed on my way home um, as I was driving. I lived in fear for almost a month, um, sleeping from one place to another. At that time, my, my daughter was, um, she was still very young. So um, I had to make arrangements for her to go and stay with her father. Uh, so this one time I'm picking her from her father's place to take her to the saloon. And I think I'm being careful. So on the way to the saloon, she says, mommy, we are being followed. And I dismiss her. But I had already picked that we are being followed. So that was a breaking point for me. Because you want to protect your loved ones, more so when it's a child. You don't want to, to bring your work um, home where your child gets to experience um, these issues which you think you are trying to be careful. So I, I, I cried right there and then because I, I thought I had failed her. I should have been um, more careful so those are moments of my career when I look back, um, I'm glad and I'm thankful that I survived, but um, I was scarred emotionally. I am glad that I published those stories, but I keep asking myself, was it worth it? So fast forward now, I still do the investigative journalism. Is it worth it? Yes, it is worth it. But I, I will always, always put my foot down and say, no story is worth my life. And I hope that um, those that we investigate and publish stories that expose their wrongdoings will realize that investigative journalism is not a crime and that it's nothing personal. We are doing the stories because they are of public interest. We are doing the stories because we want corrective measures to be taken for the benefit of the people on the ground. If, if I investigate a story and publish it and there is an impact, I sleep better at night. If I get to the bottom of the truth and people start talking about that in their different um, corners, in their different places, I sleep better at night because I think that I'm contributing towards the development of my country. We live, as journalists, we live to give voice and image to the data that we scrap every day. So when, when the voices and the images that we bring to the fore that carries our stories um, are happy with the job that we've done, not because we are siding with them, but because there is an impact um, that changes their lives. That is the ultimate goal for any journalist, I think. I think what I want to do next um, 
is to continue to promote the book, to continue to do follow-up stories on what is happening on the ground, on what government is doing to um, try and uh, hold the mines accountable, what corrective measures are the mines taking to address the challenges that we raised in the book. It's, it's, I think it's going to be quite an interesting journey from here onwards where um, in honor of my late mother, um, I'm going to try as much as possible to give women the voices that are much needed in the media space. And I think um, I don't just owe it to my mother. I also owe it to every single woman in my country who has a story to tell but has not been given a platform. You've been listening to the second season of Exposing the Invisible, a podcast by Tactical Tech with funding from SIDA. Interview and production by Mariam Abughezi. From Tactical Tech, the Exposing the Invisible team is me, Wael Iskander, Laura Ranka, Lika Plucher, Marek Tyshinsky, and Christy Lang.